If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to John chapter 15. John 15, as we continue to study the Gospel of John as a whole, and in particular this upper room discourse of John's Gospel. We're kind of in the the middle of it at this point. It's a block of teaching you'll remember from Jesus just before his trial and his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. And in many ways, it's Jesus's final instructions for how his disciples then and in all ages are to live in light of the cross and of the new realities that come once Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. We've looked, as it were, at the first half of this discourse, which focused on these words, don't let your hearts be troubled. And now we're entering into the second half, which we could say is summarized with Jesus' statement, so send I you. The, the focus here moves to the mission of the followers of Jesus, to the things that they are to do, to the continuance of Christ's ministry and the spread of the good news about him as the Messiah. One commentator even says of those closing words of chapter 14, rise, let us go from here, that they could carry a meaning something like, let us go and meet the advancing enemy. That it's, it's a, a call to arms, as it were, were, against the ruler of this world that is coming. And Jesus is going to explain his strategy for how we engage with the world and its ruler. But if that's the case, then we're going to be surprised by his strategy because the main command in this first part of John chapter 15 is simply abide, or we might say remain. Think about an action movie that you've watched or you've seen this at some point where the hero is, is getting ready to face the enemy and there's some people that are with him and what does he say? He says, you guys stay here. I'm going to go and take care of this. And in every action movie, what happens to these people that are told to stay there? They go. They don't stay, right? <laughs> of course. They leave and they, they go and they try to, to help in some way, usually causing a problem or then eventually, you know, being helpful. Uh, we've all seen this way too many times. But the, the idea is that they don't think that sitting there, that remaining, that that's going to accomplish anything. That, that's a waste. I need to be doing something. And I think as we imagine that picture, we too struggle with this concept that remaining, that abiding in Jesus is actually the, the way to advance on the enemy. The way to accomplish something of spiritual significance is to remain. But the simple command of this passage and the simple command that I think we should take as our big idea today is simply this, abide in Jesus. That's what Jesus is telling us to do here. In John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17, he's saying, abide in me. Earlier in John's gospel, the crowd asked him, what must, we, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What do we need to do, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? Believe. Believe in me. Earlier in this passage, Peter says he's ready to do anything for Jesus. He says, I, I will die for you, Jesus. But then later on here in chapter 15, we find that the way to do great things for Christ is to abide in him. This is something that pushes against our logic. It pushes against our pride. We're in some ways called to be like the Israelites when they arrived in Jericho. We don't fight in our own strength, wielding the weapons that we have. What do we do? 
We trust God and we walk faithfully. Even when it seems crazy, we just keep walking. We advance by remaining. We conquer by abiding. If we could hear this call to abide in Jesus, it, I believe it will not only bring fruitfulness into our lives and into our church, but it's going to bring peace into our hearts. We'll be able to, to be still, to cease striving, and to know God. I don't know about you, but when I think about following Christ, so often it turns into striving, not abiding. But if we could understand this, we'll find that abiding in Jesus actually brings more fruit than all of our self-motivated, self-powered striving ever could. We will know the peace that we spoke about last week and that's spoken of here, and we'll bear fruit and, and push against the powers of darkness. And this is all possible if we simply abide in Jesus. Well, let's read John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. I think usually as we're reading this passage, we would stop at verse 8 or even maybe verse 11, but I think verses 9 through 17 actually form a commentary on the metaphor that John introduces in verses 1 through 8. And so we'll read John chapter 15, uh, verse 1, all the way through verse 17, and then we'll speak, we'll talk about it together. John 15, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, to love one another, as I have loved you, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Abide in Jesus. That's our big idea, but what exactly does that mean? Let's meditate on it a little bit with some, some thoughts. Beginning in verses 1 to 3 with, with this thought, Christ alone is the source of spiritual fruitfulness. Christ alone 
is the source of spiritual fruitfulness. First, a little note on location. Again, chapter 14 ends with the, Jesus saying to his disciples, rise, let's, let's go from here, let's leave this place, uh, which could have the ideas that we've already mentioned behind it, but it's also an indicator that the group may be changing locations. Uh, the next note that we have about where Jesus and the disciples are is in John chapter 18, verse 1, and it says, he, Jesus, went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So that's the next location that we have, which the question then comes, where is he at? Where are they at in the teaching between chapter 15 and chapter 17? It could be that they were, that he just continued to teach as they were preparing to leave, to go to that garden. Or it could be that Jesus taught them as they were journeying to the garden. Uh, If that's the case, he may even have led them through a vineyard and use those surroundings as a basis for this illustration of the vine and the branches. However, there's actually no need for an actual vineyard to be surrounding the disciples as Jesus speaks about this because the heart of this metaphor is more spiritual than it is agricultural. It's, it's, it is not primarily about physical vines so much as it is about the people of Israel and the fact that God had planted them as his special vine. Vine takes us back to the Old Testament as an illustration of the, the, is, of, of the Israelites, which means that this final I am, am statement is not simply a helpful metaphor, but rather it's actually a bold proclamation from Jesus, wherein he is announcing that he is the true Israel and he is the only source of salvation. As we think about Israel being called God's vine, there's a number of places we could go in the Old Testament. If we went to all of them, what we would consistently find is that Israel was to be a vine and they failed to be the fruitful vine that God was calling them to be. In Psalm 80, verses eight to 13, the psalmist speaks to the Lord and he says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. That's the Israelite people. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. That's one clear indication that Israel is this vine. And then in Jeremiah 2.21, after describing Israel's unfaithfulness, the Lord says this, Yet I planted you, Israel, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Those, those words there, choice vine, are in fact parallel to Jesus' phrase, true vine. If you look up the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same two words that Jesus uses. Jeremiah 2.21, choice vine, and Jesus says, I am the true vine. Jesus then is saying that he is the fulfillment of the vine prophecies that Israel was unable to live up to. As a vine, they were never bearing the kind of fruit that the Father intended. In fact, we might say that they were unable to, and their failure begged the question, how can we be faithful? How can we be fruitful? How can we do what God has called us to do? Because we keep failing. We keep not being able to do it. What's the answer? They need a Messiah 
who can be the vine that they cannot be. In fact, if we go back to Psalm 80, we find in that Psalm's imagery, not only a vine, but we find the son of man. Psalm 80, if you continue on, beginning in verse 14, it says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. It's the son of man that we need. We need the son of man to come and to be the true vine, the vine who bears the fruit of righteousness that the father requires. And Jesus, the son of man alone can bear fruit by himself, which means that the only way for God's people to bear fruit is if they are in him. Notice also that this I am statement is the only one that includes a note about the father. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He's the farmer. He's the one who cares for the vine and helps it to be as fruitful as it can be. And as the vine dresser, he does two things to accomplish that. He prunes the branches that are not bearing enough fruit so that they will bear more fruit. And he throws out the branches that do not bear any fruit and never will bear fruit. John will mention the cutting off of the branches that bear no fruit later, but this idea of pruning actually doesn't come up again. If we want to understand it, we might go to passages like Hebrews 12. Uh, there we're told that the Lord disciplines those that he loves for their good. Hebrews 12, 11 says, for the, moment, for, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So pruning is painful. But when our hearts long to be fruitful for the, for the glory of God, we welcome pruning so that we can bear the fruit that we long to bear. As we think about the fact that the Father cuts off fruitless branches, there's a question that comes up. The question that arises from verse 2 is, how are those who are said to be in the vine, in Christ, how, how can be, they be those who do not bear fruit and then are cut off and taken away? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. In other words, can someone who is truly in Christ be cut off from Christ? Well, the rest of the New Testament certainly seems to answer that question with a no. Uh, even here in John's gospel, we remember the proclamation in John chapter 10 that those who are in Christ are also in the hand of the Father and no one can pluck us out of the Son and the Father's grasp, but the rest of the scriptures also teach us that there are those that, that can look like they are in Christ when they are in actuality not. We need to look no further than Judas right here in the context, right? He appeared to be one of those closest to Christ. He appeared to be a true follower of Jesus who was abiding in him when in actuality he was a betrayer. Jesus, I think, may want us to think about Judas when he says the words of verse 3. Do these sound familiar, verse 3? Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You remember back when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet and, and Peter protested the act, but then overcorrected and asked Jesus to wash all of him, to which Jesus says in John 13, verses 10 and 11, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said not all of you are 
clean. So there are some who are taken away, who are cast off, and it's not that they, that they have lost their salvation or been disowned as God's children. It's that they were never a part of the family in the first place. They were not truly clean, no matter how much it looked like they were. But there are those who are already clean, and they are clean because of the word Jesus has spoken. Think about John's gospel. So often as he speaks to the crowds, he would say that the word found no place in them. But those hearing his voice, his disciples, heard and received the word. They received salvation and therefore they were clean. They were his, his children. Hearing and receiving the word is how we become a part of Jesus, the vine. And as we will see, obedience to the word is also how we continue to abide in him and to bear fruit. One other note on this word clean is that it is the same root as the one that's translated prune in, in verse 2. Already you are clean, and, and where it says every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. The same root is a part of both of those words. So it could read that the Father cleans the branches so that they will bear more fruit. And so then we're back to the washing of the disciples' feet, aren't we? where there's an initial cleansing of salvation and then a continual cleansing that comes as we seek the forgiveness of Christ on a regular basis. So too, if we are in Christ, we are clean, we are able to bear fruit through him, but the Father will come and he will clean us. He will prune us. Why? So that we'll bear more fruit. There's a lot in there. Let me summarize, okay? Here's what I've been trying to say. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the true vine, meaning that he is the true Israel. He is the one who shows forth the glory of God through his righteousness, through the good fruit that he produces from himself. And since none of us, like Israel, can produce good fruit in and of ourselves, it's only when we are in him that we can produce fruit. The Father is the vine dresser, and he knows those who are truly in the Son. Therefore, he cuts off those who are not truly in the vine through faith, while he lovingly prunes and cleans those who are in him so that they will bear more fruit. Salvation, therefore, we know, is found only when we are in Christ. There is no other place of salvation. He is the source of life. And only as we attach ourselves to him by faith will we ever know forgiveness, will we ever know life and fruitfulness. No one here has life in and of themselves as Jesus does. Therefore, none of us can save ourselves. So the call here is to trust in Jesus as the only way of salvation, the only way of fruitfulness. And if we're in Christ, then we must remain in him. We must abide. At this point, we start to begin to see how this illustration instructs us about how we are to live as God's people in this world. And the key word is abide. Because while we cannot bear fruit on our own, if we are in Christ and his spirit is in us, then we can do good works. We can bear lasting fruit. So let's move on to verses four through eight and see this. If we desire to bear fruit, we must abide in Jesus. If we desire to bear fruit, if we want to be fruitful, we must abide in Jesus. Jesus is the true vine, but he's not simply the source of spiritual life at the beginning of our salvation. He is the continual source of spiritual life throughout our salvation. 
I don't know if any of you have an electric car, but if you do, this illustration doesn't work for your car, okay? Um, but for the rest of us, our cars have two different sources of power, electricity and combustion, okay? A car's ignition is electric, meaning that when you, when you turn that key, electricity starts the car. It uses the battery to get things firing. But once the engine turns over, combustion takes over. Combustion is now the, the source of power. I need Trevor here to tell me if I'm saying this all right. I called my dad to make sure that this was a decent illustration. But there's two sources of power. Electricity starts your car, and, and combustion of gasoline continues to keep it running. With the Christian life, there are not two sources of power. There's one source of power. Maybe I could push this. Maybe the Christian is an electric car. One source of, I don't know. So what, what the point is, we don't begin with Jesus saving us and then produce fruit in our own strength. That's the problem with Galatians, the, the Galatian church, right? Having begun by the Spirit, they were being perfected by the flesh. Our justification, our sanctification, our fruitfulness, though, they are all powered by Jesus. They are all powered by abiding in him. What's interesting here, verse 4, the abiding is mutual. If we are to abide in Christ, it, that, that's true, but also Christ is abiding in us. The illustration of the vine is what helps us to see this reality because while it's obvious that the, the branches are in the main vine and that they're attached to it, the vine is also in the branches. It, it's what's giving them life. Think about a vine. You, you know that there's a place where that vine starts, where it comes out of the ground, kind of the trunk of the vine, right? But there's also this sense in which the, the vine is the branches. It's, it's all together. That's not to say that we are the vine in this illustration, no, but simply that the vine and branches become intertwined. They abide, as it were, in one another. The point is clear in verses four and five that fruitfulness comes from abiding and that there is no fruitfulness apart from abiding. A branch separated from the vine does not bear fruit in the same way that your Christmas lights will not light up if they are separated from the electrical outlet. Nothing is going to shine. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. And if we are not in him, we can do nothing. We will shine as bright as twinkle lights that are still in the box. Therefore, in the words of D.A. Carson, spiritual fruitfulness is found through continuous dependence on the vine, constant reliance upon him, persistent spiritual imbibing of his life. I think that's what abiding is. Continuous dependence, dependence, constant reliance, persistent drinking of his life. If there's not continuous dependence, constant reliance, persistent drinking, we start to die. So do we believe this? Do we believe that apart from Jesus, we cannot bear fruit? that we can do nothing of spiritual significance on our own? Or do we think that within us, apart from Christ, there is something that we can do that is of eternal value? And even if we say, if we say, as I think we all would, that we agree that we must abide in Christ to bear fruit, we say that, how do we live? Do, do we seek to live in our own strength apart from Christ and his power? 
Are our lives marked by dependence and reliance on Jesus or by dependence and reliance on ourselves? A self-reliant attitude tends to be the norm in our culture. We are self-made men and women, right? There's a song by a group called The Weepies that I love. It's called Can't Go Back Now. And there's, I love it for lots of different reasons, but there's this one line that bothers me. Uh, they sing this. They say, the only steps that matter are the ones you take all by yourself. I think I know what they're getting at, but there's also this sense in which actually the opposite is true for the follower of Christ. The only steps that matter are the ones that we take in the power of Christ, and that should be every step that we take. Because if we're relying on ourselves, then we're not abiding in Christ. And the one who is not abiding in Christ for salvation and for for fruit produces nothing of spiritual value. Verse six says that the branches for whom that is completely true were never in the vine in the first place. They are the ones that are cut off and thrown away by the Father to be gathered and burned, which almost certainly speaks of eternal judgment. To not abide in Jesus is to be spiritually dead and therefore eternally judged. But if we abide, Verses seven and eight reveal that judgment is not what awaits us, but the kind of relationship with Christ that brings glory to the Father and reveals that we are his true disciples. When we abide in Jesus, we, we produce fruit and we reveal to ourselves and to the world that, that we truly are in Christ. The relationship we have with Christ is marked by, by prayer and humility then, by dependence and by a longing for God's glory above all else. Again, as has already happened here in the Upper Room Discourse, we're told to ask anything in Christ's name and trust that he will do it. Because if we're abiding in him, then our desires start to match his own. We're in the vine. We, we, we want what the Father wants. We want what Christ wants. And our ultimate desire is for the glory of God. And how could God not be glorified if we're abiding in him? He's the one working through us, just as he did through Christ. And therefore, there's no glory to us. And there's no glory that we desire because our hearts are filled with a longing for the Father to be lifted up, for the Son to be seen as glorious. I think Jesus here sets before us two ways to live. One that leads to fruitfulness in life and one that leads to fruitlessness and death. The only way to find life is to abide in the source of all life the only way to bear fruit is to remain in the vine. The only way to glorify the Father is to rest in the Son. As the passage goes on, I think we discover a little bit more about the kind of fruit that we're to produce as those abiding in Christ. And we find this, the fruit of abiding flows from the love of the Father and the Son. The fruit of abiding flows from the love of the Father and the Son. Could it be that love is in fact what's flowing through the vine? The fruit of abiding flows from the love of the Father and the Son. Love becomes the dominant theme again. And Jesus returns to his command to love one another. He first mentioned it, you remember back in chapter 13, but his disciples were preoccupied and troubled by the fact that he said he was going to leave them. 
And so having comforted them in, in chapters 13 and 14, he's able to return to this call to love one another. And while love one another is certainly a fruit of abiding in Christ, as we will see, we first see in verses 9 to 11 that a knowledge of God's love leads to joyful obedience. A knowledge of God's love leads to joyful obedience. Joyful obedience is a fruit that comes from abiding in Christ. Joyful obedience to the word of Christ is a fruit of abiding in him. Verse 9 begins by comparing the love that Christ has for us to the love the Father has for Christ. Think about that. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, as the Father has loved Jesus, so have I loved you. Could we even understand what that means? It's, it's an unconditional love. It's a limitless love. It's the kind of love, like we said last week, that makes you feel invincible. Jesus reveals that part of abiding him is to abide in that love. It's to know more and more the love of Christ for us, to grasp more and more the fact that Jesus has loved us when we were thoroughly unlovely, that he's pursued us in love all the way to the cross. We are loved in the same way that the Father loves the Son. And when we know that, more and more, when we know the limitless love of God, what happens? We keep the words, the commandments of Christ with joy. When we know that Christ loves us, we want to do what he says. Well, the commandments, most basically, are to believe in Christ, according to John's Gospel, and to believe in Christ is to trust him. It's to trust that his ways are always for our good, that the, the fences that he sets up and the path that he tells us to, to walk down lead to our greatest joy, that his words and his commandments lead to life. And as we abide in the love of Jesus and we trust the depth of his love for us, we start to obey his words. To earn our salvation? Of course not but rather as a joyful response to his love and out of a desire for our own joy, knowing that the one who loves us only offers us his, his commandments for our good. Every commandment he gives us, every direction he offers us, every piece of his word is for our good and our joy. Joy, it's a word of the season, isn't it? Joy is a word of the Christmas season. You probably have a decoration in your home somewhere that says joy. Or you'll go to the mall or some store this week and you'll see somewhere where it says joy. And as you do, I wonder if we could all pause and remember these verses. Remember that if we long for the joy of Jesus to be in us, and if we long for our joy to be filled, what's that going to look like? Is it something that's just going to show up in our lives? No, we, if we long for that joy, then we're going to seek to know God's love more and more and then obey his commandments because his commandments lead to joy. If we long for joy, we will trust that walking in his ways is our greatest good and will lead to our greatest joy. As we think about the fruit of abiding in Jesus, we see this joyful obedience that uh, that comes from abiding in Christ. Let's say next, for, regarding verses 12 to 17, that an experience of God's love overflows in a love for others. 
an experience. We talked about a knowledge of God's love. Let's use this word experience. I know we shy away from that sometimes, but I think it makes sense here. An experience of God's love overflows in a love for others. When we taste of God's love in a significant way, it overflows in love for one another. Jesus calls us here again to love one another as he has loved us. So what is our experience with the love of God like, and how does it inform how we love one another? Two ways that, uh, to, to describe our experience of God's love. First, it's cross-shaped. It's a cross-shaped experience of love. Our relationship with Jesus in this sense is not that of a servant and a master, but of friends, he says. Because Jesus doesn't hide from us his ways. He clearly reveals them as a friend would. And not only that, but he performs the greatest act of friendship. He lays down his life for us. What a verse. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. It's a cross-shaped experience of his love. And as we understand this cross-shaped love that he has for us, we, we are ready to follow him down the same path as we love one another. It seems strange, doesn't it, in verse 14 that he says, we are his friends if, <laughs> if we do his commands. You have any friends like that? You're my friend if you do what I tell you to. <laughs> Maybe you had someone when you were growing up on the playground that was like that. We can be friends as long as you give me your lunch money. Uh, if we love one another in this way, then, then Christ is our friend. I, again, here, what I think is happening, this is not conditional. This is descriptive. He's saying, if we are his friends, then of course we're going to do what he says. It's the fruit of those who are truly abiding in the vine. When we love one another as Jesus loved us, we just reveal the fact that we're actually in him, that we're truly his friends because we're doing what he asked us to do. It's not conditional. It just describes what we're like. Of course you're my friends if you love one another because that's what I do. For us to love in this way is going to take some pruning from the Father though, isn't it? To love one another so much that we would lay down our lives for one another, we're gonna to have to be pruned of our self-interest, we're gonna be pruned of our pride, but as we seek to walk in the way of the cross, we're gonna learn the joy of loving others as Christ has loved us. In this season, as we remember the love of Christ for us and the sacrifices that he made, we're called into that same sacrifice for one another to show that we truly are children of God. Our experience with God's love is not only cross-shaped, though, but it's, it's an eternally rooted experience. It's eternally rooted. And I, I get that from verse 16, because Jesus talks about having chosen us, which I think reminds us of God's eternal purposes of salvation all the way to eternity past. We were chosen in him, remember, before the foundations of the world. And in that plan, love for one another was the goal. Do you think about that, that... God's plan from eternity past to save his people had a purpose, and one of those key purposes was that we would love each other. It feels simple, but it is actually the most profound thing in the world, that God has saved us so that we would love one another. The eternal fruit that he speaks of is the fruit of love for one another. What's going to abide into eternity is love the love of God for us and our love for him and for one another. The love that we have is eternal. 
We're all going to buy people gifts for Christmas. And by next year, a lot of them will be forgotten or eaten (laughs) or broken. Our material world is one that is constantly fading. But think about, what about something that could abide forever? (laughs) Jesus says that love, love that we have for one another abides forever. Or as Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 13, many things will pass away, but faith, hope, and love abide. They remain. And the greatest of these is love. As we think about these fruits of abiding, let me close by adding something to our big idea. I think we could say it like this. Abide in Jesus in order to produce the fruit of Jesus. Because what Jesus is describing here is what he modeled. We abide in Jesus and we produce the fruit of Jesus or the fruit that is Jesus. Fruit that looks like Jesus. Jesus' knowledge of God's love led him to joyful obedience, right? In the incarnation and in his willingly and joyfully laying down his life for us. He is our source of life and he is our model of abiding. So as we run this race, we must remember to always be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is our example. He has shown us how to abide in the Father such that we joyfully obey him. And also Jesus' experience of God's love overflowed in love for others. He fulfills that command to love one another on our behalf, and then he shows us how to live it out. As he says, there's no greater love than to lay down our lives for our friends. And then Romans takes it a step further, doesn't it? One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A vine produces a particular kind of fruit. I don't know much about vines and grapes and winemaking and whatnot, but there's many different kinds of vines that produce many different kinds of grapes that result in many different kinds of fruit and wine. But as we abide in Jesus, who is the vine, we're going to produce fruit in our lives that looks like Jesus eternal fruit that brings glory to the Father, that brings joy to our hearts. And so all praise to him for the life he's given us, and may he receive ever more praise as we abide in him and as we produce fruit for his glory and for our joy. Would you join me in a moment of silence, and we will reflect on God's word, seek to allow the Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts, and then I will pray for us. Father, thank you for Jesus, the true vine. We could never produce the fruit that you call us to on our own because we don't have life in ourselves like he does. But he has come. He has come to do what we never could and to show us how now, empowered by your spirit, we can walk in these ways and we can produce 
the fruit of obedience and of love. Lord, would you, by your grace, help us to know how to abide in you. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you fill us with your word so that we can obey it fully? God, we thank you for Christ. And we thank you for your word that leads us to life and to joy. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.